I'm Dr. Sterling. I'm a board certified OBGYN and mom. Welcome to the Becoming Moms podcast, where I give you the step-by-step to optimizing your physical and emotional wellness in pregnancy so you can create a nourishing environment for your baby, your family, and yourself. The information shared in this podcast is intended for general education purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or another qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you heard in this podcast. All right, lovelies, let's dive in to this week's episode. All right. Hello. We are joined today with Erica Davis, who is a birth worker and an educator. You educate on many things, uh, anti-racism, childbirth, postpartum, and we are so glad to have you here. Why don't you um, give us a little bit of an intro to you? Yeah. Um, hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Erica. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm coming to coming to coming to you from my house which uh stands on the um lands of the coastal salish people and the people who um of the stillicum um i am you said it i have so many hats that i wear but um i'm a birth worker um i do birth work um postpartum work and i teach childbirth education um i'm a yoga instructor um i teach prenatal and non-pregnant folks yoga um, I, um, am Jewish and I'm in the process of becoming a priestess, Jewish priestess. Um, and I like sort of, I, I mean, like we we're talking about a little bit about anti-racism, but I don't like to wear that hat as much, but I do, um, center all of my birth work around anti-racism and activism, um, not to be an activist, but to make sure that that, it's, that that is at the center of the birth work that I do and trying to push people more towards that center so that who they're learning from, what they're learning about, communities that they're engaging, um, looking at birth work through an anti-racism lens. So that is part of my work as well. Um, I'm also a wife and, um, a partner and a daughter and um, so many things. But yeah, I think that I think that about covers it. Wonderful. And so what brought you to this work? How did you mm. how did you find birth work? Oh, my word. Um, that is a great question. And it's so interesting for me to think about because um, it was sort of accidental, to be honest with okay. you. Um, I thought I wanted to be a midwife. Um, I thought midwives and doulas were the, were the same. Mm-hmm. Um, I was living in New York state at the time and that don't, nobody quote me on New York state laws. Um, but I knew I didn't want to work in a hospital right. and I could still do out of hospital birth, but I knew that I didn't want to be responsible for people, keeping people alive, to be very <laughs> honest. Like I was like, I, I can't that. be responsible for keeping like a birthing person and their baby or babies yeah. alive. Like I don't want that responsibility, <clears throat> but I liked um, this idea of caring for people while they were giving birth. My, my first lens to this work was just birth. Um, yeah. So a friend of mine, um, her name's Emily Landry. Um, she lives in Tucson, no, Tulsa, Oklahoma now, but we both lived in New York together. 
And she told me about Ancient Song Doula Services, um, which is a doula service based in mm-hmm. Brooklyn that was started by a Black woman, Chanel. Um, and we, I took Chanel's training. And then yeah. um, I did like maybe two births in New York. Um, and then we moved to the Pacific Northwest and I was working non-birth jobs. And um, yeah, just quit my job one day and decided to do full-time birth work. <laughs> I don't know why, but I did. I had a very supportive partner. That, that is why I have a partner who's incredibly supportive of me quitting my job and doing what I want to do. Yeah. And I mean, birth work is tough because it doesn't necessarily happen nine to five, right? Most of the time it doesn't. Oh, no. No. Hell no. Hell no. Which was why it was, I mean, when I was living in New York, I wasn't doing very many births. I think I maybe did six. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was working in nonprofits and mm-hmm. I was working in Jewish nonprofits and it was really flexible. Yeah. Um, so I could say like, oh, someone's going into labor. I'm not going to be there tomorrow. And it wasn't... Um, that hard but then when i moved to the pacific northwest i was a retail manager at a big store and that was a little harder to be like i'm not coming to work for two or three days um yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah. okay and so you have you know you have this professional lens through which you you know you've navigated this work but you've also navigated a lot as an individual and gone through (laughs) So I would love to just hear that story, hear your story of actually navigating this whole, you know, the medical industrial complex. And yeah, yeah. it's, it's, it has changed the more birth work I did. So when I um, first started trying to get pregnant, which has taken me eight years, um, I was a new doula. Like I, I literally was a new doula when I was starting the, the process of being, being in fertility treatments. Mm-hmm. And I just went along with whatever anybody told me. Right. Um, that's what I did. Um, as pregnancy became harder, um, I, and, and stuff was happening with my body um, that required like medical care. Right. I really had to, to advocate for myself Um and the main thing that happened was a fibroid surgery. I, I shared this with my, the folks that are in my childbirth ed class, and I share it with everyone, is that I went to three doctors mm-hmm. um, to get just, like, information about, like, fibroid surgery. And they, they all told me that I would bleed out, that I would probably die, and that I would probably, mm-hmm. if I didn't die, I would get a hysterectomy. That's just what they told me. And then they'd be like, so when do you want to schedule the surgery? <laughs> I'm so, and I'm not even making this up. This is I know, I'm... I believe you. Yeah. yeah. And believe- like, I'm, you can't see my outfit now, but this was the outfit I wore to my doctor's appointment. Now, now I wear like, I wear like good clothes and like good shoes to go to the doctor because I'm used to feeling like shit when I leave. So I like, like to go looking ha- gorgeous and like feeling good about myself so that if I'm given shitty news that I don't feel also like shit, it, it was horrible. So then I found this doctor who essentially said the same things, right? I right. had... I had, as far as she could see, looking in my uterine cavity, I had four fibroids that were very large. So she was like, you know, she was like, but she would be like, the risk of bleeding out is because this, and this is how I would deal with this, this bleeding out issue. And if you were bleeding out and we couldn't stop it, then hysterectomy is what we do because if we take out your entire uterus, then it will be helpful for us to like save your life. Like, so she 
like you're gonna die you could bleed out blah 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 mm-hmm. she would she explained it all and then she also yeah. was like and i hear that you have been trying at this point i've been trying to get pregnant this was my surgery was november t- 2019 so i had been trying to get pregnant for seven and a half years yeah and she was like i hear you telling me that you want to get pregnant and I'm going to try to do this slowly. And she completely like, she, I was her only surgery for the whole day. She didn't right. schedule anything after me and it took six hours, yep. but like I left the OR with my uterus in my life. And she was the only doctor who, who, who tested my hemoglobin before I went in for, t- for surgery. Like, I don't know, would these other two doctors have had me get a I'm sure they would have had me have get a so. pre-op test. I hope so too. But it was never like let's set up your pre-op and then let's set up your point your operation. It was like when can you come in for the surgery? She was the only one that was like let's schedule your pre-op to make sure things are fine. Mm-hmm. And yeah. turns out I was completely my hemoglobin levels were like five point five. Oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. So if if I had gone to surgery, I would have died because I my blood was not coagulating. I had no blood cells to make my body, my, my blood was water. Oh my yeah. goodness. And yeah. you felt, and you felt okay. I felt, I mean, I, I mean, like I, you know, that's a great question, Dr. Sterling. And I think the, the answer is that most women, most people who are socialized as women, most people who, um, identify as a woman, we just work. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> so like, was I tired and exhausted all the time? Yeah. But I was also yeah. told that I was too fat. Like every time I was like, I'm really out of breath. I'm really tired. They'd be like, oh, if you lost some weight, like that's probably what, like, so, so you know what I mean? Like nobody like attributed and like so, people did say I had low iron, but, but no one ever told me that my iron was like this horrible. So I ended up needing two blood transfusions before I could do yeah. my surgery and my hemoglobin level only went up to around a seven or so. So she had blood on hand so that I could get another blood, tr- blood transfusion. But like she ended up taking out two and a half pounds and six fibroids. There were two hiding wow. Wow. and endometriosis wow. from my right ovary. And I am talking to you today, pregnant, planning my birth. Goodness. Oh my goodness. But that's all because I like really, I went through two doctors yeah. and eight years of fertility treatment. It's <laughs> like the same thing with my fertility doctors. My fertility doctors were assholes and, um, I mean, they were all assholes. Like if any of you are watching this, you're an asshole. Um, the fertility doctor that like we are working with now is amazing. Yeah. She's amazing because like she would read our chart and be like, wow, y'all have been through so much. This is, this must be so hard. Not yeah. like, okay, this is the format of what we're doing. Um, she works for a big um, company, but the location that's here in the Pacific Northwest, it's just her. So yeah. like, so like, as opposed to going into a fertility doctor and seeing some random person put something in my vagina, it would be her. And she'd be like, how are you doing, Erica? How's, how's your wife doing? Like she'd be, it'd be the same people, like the same phlebotomists, the yeah. same people. Um, and when we were going through really hard stuff with our fertility, she would call us on the weekends or at night. And like, and like when things went really shitty for us, she like cried and was like sweet and kind. And then yeah. like, when I got pregnant, she like had like tears brimming in her eyes and was yeah. like, so excited. Like yeah. when you're in such a vulnerable situation, like it, it makes me angry, honestly, um, because people don't know what they don't know. Totally. And like, 
if you think that your medical provider is there to take care of you, then you trust them. They're not there to take care of you. No offense to you. You're a medical provider, but like people, they don't give a shit. They like care about liability. That's what I told my wife all the time. It's like, they want to make sure you're alive, which is why I'm not a midwife. (laughs) 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 Not that midwives just want to keep people alive, but like your priority is like keeping people alive. There's, there's um, a lot, there is a lot to hold, you know, you've got a lot of different kind of balls in the air with like, you know, um, yeah, so I can, I can definitely uh, see, I can see it from, from both angles, you know? Yeah, yeah. Because I've navigated, I've, you know, I've navigated both sides. What I, what I'm really hearing you say when I think what's so important for people watching is that um, there, unfortunately, sometimes it's a lot of shit you have to wade through to find the oh, right yeah. provider. Yeah. And um, who has the time to do that? Like, thank God, like, I don't have insurance. I'm a doula. My wife has good insurance. Right. And I only know this stuff because of my job. So, like, for people who don't have yeah good insurance or, like, know this stuff, then they're just stuck. And that's, like, why I think birth workers are so vitally important. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I think it's the idea too of, um, the relationship between you and your healthcare provider is Mm -hmm. not just like, it's not like just a robot showing up. Like health is not just like make the right decision, do. do the right thing. How traumatizing is it to go in the actual physical experience of being told you're gonna die? Like that is bad for you it's not the first person was just like she was this white skinny blonde woman and she said it with a smile and then she's like so like you let's get you scheduled and I was like and I left the office and then I like got to my car and I like bawled my eyes out yeah like I didn't cry in front of her but I was just like yeah 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 because you know if you it's a job right so some people are just acting like it's Tuesday and it's like your life and it's a it's a you know and uh if you don't have especially if you don't have a provider who's really in touch with themselves and really in touch with their their self-care and their vulnerability man they cannot show up in that space for you so finding a provider who does get teary-eyed and does show their human emotion like that is actually a pretty good sign it's great you have someone who's going to walk with you yeah 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 yeah. How did you, how did you figure out how to advocate for yourself? What would you tell someone who's starting this journey? You know, you, you just had to learn on your own. What, what is something that you could shed some light on? I would say that when I'm talking to pregnant people in childbirth ed classes specifically, that I ask them if they're able to have conversations with their, their providers mm-hmm and um how they feel when they leave their providers um if they feel listened to by their providers um if they feel like they can trust their providers and to sort of like start with that to just like get them thinking about it um to remind folks that they have at any time the ability to change providers and going through like what that looks like and how that happens um but it's hard and it's like not the work that people should have to do when they're seeking medical care is to find someone that's good but like 
And a lot of times, like, we don't know that we can do that. So right now, like, I happen to have a first OB appointment with someone who I'm pretty sure is going to be my OB, but I have two other appointments, two other OBs. Yeah. So, but people don't know that they can do that. Or unfortunately, if you have shitty insurance, you can't do that. Like, you have the one person you have to see. So it's hard. So then if you're stuck with somebody who you have to be with... I always encourage people to have open-ended conversations with their providers, yeah. especially around labor and birth. Like people, I find that providers will say yes and no. And like, I'm like, I always ask them, I always encourage them and, and like coach them. And we practice asking questions that will um, start a dialogue versus yeah. like give you, that will be an easy thing to say yes or no to. Um, and I think that that is really a good indication of like, how you'll be treated when it's really important if your provider is willing to have like an open and honest conversation with you versus like just saying what they what you what they think that they want you to hear yeah 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 i think that that's really really excellent advice and i think that it's we also sometimes approach physicians and midwives as as almost these like not like they're not humans and like we we think that they tell us something and then we have to just like that's what that's what it is as opposed to like a a give and a take and also we can say you know um i'm feeling like my concerns aren't being listened to yeah that's a really good way to assess what's what's someone's really like right yeah defensive or are they like are they called to be like oh my god yeah sorry you know yeah and i think like a lot i see it a lot but we also like as birth workers are are encouraging people who when they are being dismissed to like have their providers make note of the dismissal so if you say like oh you know i'm feeling like my period's really heavy and, and like they're like oh well you know that's normal for fibroids and you're like well i'm concerned because like i'm going through three pads like an hour that's fine so can you just note that it's that you said it was normal that going through three pads of blood an hour is normal can you just note that in my chart that we had that discussion and then i and then you'll see like uh you'll see that little switch i didn't do that i mean like that's like when i first started having these conversations like that was not part of what i did it's what i do now (laughs) well you know it's not it's like it's almost like because the medical system is so messed up and it's not educating people properly how to do things that then the onus is on the patient and individual to do Mm -hmm. the education. And it's like, it is, that's, you know, that's such a heavy weight to carry, you know? I mean, especially now when you're also like dealing with all the bullshit of like the world. (laughs) So like have to like deal with like how to advocate for yourself when you're seeking medical care during a global pandemic. I know. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not, um, it's not right, but I'm, I'm glad that there are people out there like yourself who are helping to educate people about how to do that the right way. I think, you know, the reality is, is that oftentimes, like if you're, if you're um, a black person, if you are a person of color, if you can find a provider who is also black or indigenous or a person of color, the data is pretty clear. that you have better you have better outcomes and it doesn't mean that you know a a person if you have like a transracial relationship doesn't mean that it's not that it's necessarily not going to be good Mm -hmm. but um 
you know, obviously we don't have enough of those providers. So, mm-hmm. uh, but if you- Well, and it's even harder if like, you know, like I, I always think of like doctor and midwife in my head, cause like that yeah. is helpful, but only if that person's there. Yep. Yeah. So like if you have a black provider in an OB group and there's one black provider and the rest of them are like non-black people, like you have to still be able to like be ready because like who knows it's a toss of the dice if your your provider that you love is is there and that's yeah. across the board but specifically like as black birthing people like yes you know finding a provider of color a provider who who you feel comfortable with because they um, share like some of your identities um, is helpful and you have to make sure they're there yeah 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 you can't make sure they're there. <laughs> no, no, that's, you know, and more and more practices are moving to the, you know, a big group model. And then, mm-hmm. um, and then even then sometimes big groups also have people cover when, you know, and so you really, even if you think the, okay, I've met everyone in the practice and everything, then there's like, there'll be a random person who's covering like a Friday night because somebody yeah. had something. And then, I mean, yeah, it's really tough. It's really it's so tough. hard. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, obviously we've talked a lot about the weight that people carry and trying to advocate for themselves in the system that is not built um, to, to really um, support health, right? It's, it's built to treat disease um, Mm -hmm. and not to support health. So how, how do you embrace joy along this journey where do you find those pockets it's so i think it's necessary and um hard like i just keep repeating like COVID is making everything really hard the um state of like race relations in this country is making things especially hard so i think specifically for marginalized communities i think everyone needs to celebrate joy yeah yeah right we should all have more joy in our life but I think I, when I think specifically of marginalized communities, specifically of like black folks and um, queer folks, like I think um, centering joy is so important. Um, so for me, um, and this is also like, I, I I always, when I talk about this stuff in like my classes and my education classes, I will say like, we all hold privileged, right? So yeah. like some of the privilege I hold is that I have a spouse who has a job mm-hmm. who allows me to have space and time to take breaks. But I realize that that is not a privilege that everybody has an opportunity to have. So for me personally, it's taking breaks, like yeah. really just taking time away from this heavy work. Yeah. Um, and birth work is, you know, it's, it's birth is everything birth is like joy and pain and fear and elation and exuberance and deep deep lows and grief yeah even with a perfectly pregnant perfectly healthy baby and a perfectly easy birth like you still have that range of emotions and holding space for people who are experiencing those range of emotions as a birth worker is incredibly hard um so for me, it really is about like taking space um, between between the birth, between myself. A few of my colleagues um, have taught me to like put on my birth 
face when I go into a birth and it's not about like being like oh yeah I'm tough but like an acknowledgement of before you go into a birth of like this is not me this is not me this is not me this is the birth and then when you leave the birth space to then like come back to your space so that you can try to create space between those two very different worlds um spending time with like my wife is like yeah. what I've been doing a lot of, of time um spending time that has nothing to do with birth I spend a lot of time um, when the weather is good, when I actually have a garden, like in the garden, um, yeah. and when I'm not gardening, I feel very disjointed and, and, and disconnected, um, sleep. I'm a big fan of sleep. Um, <laughs> it's, there's, so, there's some joy there. <laughs> there's so much joy there. Yeah. Um, yeah. And just like reconnecting to the things that make me, me, like I am a birth worker, but as I said, when I started, I'm so many other things. Yeah. And, remembering to sort of make the separation between birth work which is my work and like Erica who is just like a woman yeah yeah navigating her own pregnancy and her own her yeah. own uh, you know. <laughs> yeah all those things <laughs> as yeah. if it's not enough pregnancy can be really hard on top of all the physical stuff there's the emotional impact of not feeling well and not feeling at home in your body for months on end if you are having a tough time in pregnancy you are not alone i have so been there and I want to help you. Head over to thebestpregnancyclass.com to register for my free class, Four Ways to Make Your Pregnancy Easier and Healthier. This class is all about taking some of the stress and overwhelm off your plate. Head over to thebestpregnancyclass.com and pick a time to watch the class from the comfort of your own home. You deserve support, Mama. You know, obviously, all of the discussion about about race and intersectionality and gender and all this stuff, it's kind of like, you know, it's, it's definitely like, we need to get all this shit out of the closet, right? Put it all out in the open and like, okay, what have we got here? But um, I'm sure that it gets to the point where it's just like, it's, it's being talked about so much that it's like, you can't necessarily escape it. Like, you know, yeah. And that must, and also everybody's, I'm sure, you know, you do a lot of work in educating people about this and like educating people while also being one of the groups that are being oppressed by this. Yeah. Multiple identities of groups. I'm a woman. I'm a black woman. I'm a black Jewish woman. I'm a black gay Jewish woman. Like that is a lot of... Oppression. <laughs> when you look up, when you look up intersectionality in the in the, I, there's a lot there in the are. middle of my zen. Yeah, there's a lot of of overlapping in my thing. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think that that's the thing is that you know I no longer talk about race and racism and anti-racism, um, unless people are paying me to do it. Totally, because it's exhausting. It's yeah. like incredibly exhausting, um, and. Um, the thing that I say to white folks is that the exhaustion that you feel like the exhaustion that most, um, most folks who like to think of themselves as good white folks have been feeling probably since the election of 2016, like that exhaustion is like fake for it's fake exhaustion in my opinion, because it's like fleeting, right? Like you get to feel really, really sad that that person was elected to office. And then you get to feel fine about it in about like 
a month or when this when it's summer and like your life really hasn't been impacted by this situation right and then you know when there are um continual traumas on on the news of like black people being murdered and stuff like that can make you feel that little bit of exhaustion again and you feel like oh that's a lot of stuff and like you know I'm doing the things I'm reading the books I'm doing the stuff but then you feel fine again in like a few months and until the next big thing happens but for people who are experiencing those traumas um racial traumas like the the um the traumas that trans folks experience like um black folks experience women experience um and people who hold those intersectional identities there's no break from that like literally like there are things i could hide about my identity and i say this all the time like i i come out as a gay person all the time because it's important for me to not hide that i come out as a jew all of the time because it's important for me not to hide that but if i wanted to in this world that presumes that i'm a christian straight person Mm -hmm. i could do that and be safer but i still walk around in my black skin so like people who walk around in black skin or brown skin don't get the breaks that white people get so like i'm often amused and then infuriated by people who were like, it's a lot. And I'm like, wow, I'm so sorry. The last four years have been a lot for you um, because I'm 41 years old. And like my first experience of racism was before I have a memory. Like it was my mom's memory of like me stepping on, me touching something in the neighbor's house and then dragging me home by my clothes. And then my mom watching the woman bleaching her house because I touched it. Yeah, it's like a whole different. It's different. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So like, so for me, like centering joy feels super important for Black people and queer people and like Jews. Like yesterday was International Holocaust Remembrance Day. Like I feel like it's important for people who are marginalized to center joy and rest. And it makes me enraged when white people are like, "I'm so tired." I want to center my joy and rest too. And I'm like, fuck you. Like get your ass like in the streets and like, you know, like, like, and yes, nervous system regulation is important for all of us. But the minute you let up as a white person, you have the opportunity to slide back into your life and like, and And there's no sliding back for people who are marginalized. But into your inherent, like, I don't want to, you know, freak anybody out here, but your inherent racism because, because, you know, and I think that that's the thing that's so frustrating, um, you know, for a lot of people, I can, is this idea that, you know, we have this definition, a lot of white people hold this definition of a racist as this like egregious, like Ku Klux Klan, like egregious human being. And so they they say, I'm not that. I'm not racist. I don't do that. I don't do that. And that's the thing is, it's like, okay, that's not, that's not what a racist looks like, right? I mean, yeah. yes, it is, but like, there's this whole spectrum of, yeah. of, of racism and really like, you know, what, um, you know, my, my husband's Jewish and we have a, a, a Jewish family. I was not born a Jew, but um, have, have uh, become part of the family. And 
for him, it's like, you know, the, the, the Nazi, like the people who are like neo-Nazis, like wear that tattoo is super, super upsetting. But it's also just that, like the, what people call microaggressions, like the oh, little yeah. stuff and yeah. the word microaggression, micro is so minimizing yeah. because it seems like some of those microaggressions are really the most wear, like the ones that wear on you the most. Uh, yeah. Talk to yeah, me about yeah. that. Talk to me. Yeah. I mean, well, yeah, because like, yeah, you, you sure someone like calls you like a slur, like that hurts. And that like is, but like if you spend your whole life being told like you don't sound like a black person or like you talk white as a compliment, like. Yeah. It just like, it just, you know, it's. It's like, it's, it's like this teeny, it's, it's like, it's like, um, it's like a uh, coronavirus, right? Like it's like everywhere yeah. and it's small and it like, but if in it, like maybe you get a little bit, I, coronavirus is not a good one. I'm not a medical person, <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's, it's, yeah. it's like, it's like, it's like a, like a hangnail or like a yeah. paper cut that like you get it and it doesn't hurt so bad, but then you get, you cut an onion and you get onion juice in it. And then you cut a lemon, you get lemon juice in it. And then you like tear it. Like, it's just like, it just is feels small. But if you keep, if it keeps piling up, it, it's really exhausting. Like I, um, like my wife is like the only white person I really tolerate. <laughs> I'm very seriously yeah. because yeah. it's exhausting. And like, you know, like I, I have a lot of people who are my friends who are white and really George Floyd's death put a huge line in the sand for me of, of the tolerance of white people that I will, will, will tolerate yeah. very, very honestly. Um, yeah. Because I saw very clearly white people who didn't give a fuck, white people who pretended like they gave a fuck and white people who gave a fuck on social media, but to my face were horrible fucking offensive dangerous people and I was I had like it was it was so intense that like the women in my like Jewish circle like were really giving me space because I was just like I don't want to talk about shit I can't process this shit with y'all this is your shit to process I don't need to process this this is this is my life and the way that like my circle of like 12 Jewish women, most of them identify self-identify as white or light-skinned or white passing. Yeah, yeah. Just like rallied around me in support. Like they gave me my space and like food would show up at my door. It was very much like I was a postpartum person. Like food would show up at my door or like my I'd get like $20 from like postmates or something to go get myself food and like and then when I like came back into the space it wasn't about like, "Hey Erica, do you need to process? Can we talk about this with you?" It was very much like let's move to the next thing and this and that they I know they I know they are all continuing to do work but George Floyd's murder was like really a time where I just like my tolerance for white guilt and white tears and um performative allyship was is it's zero and people get one chance with me (laughs) like you get it you get you get what you show me and if you what you show me is bullshit I don't even call people out anymore like I really am just about like I don't have time and for you in my life, because like the way that you're, you are is dangerous for me. The way that you present in the world 
is dangerous for me to send my people to you as birth workers. So like hella birth workers were like cleared away from me because I was just like, there's no way I'm sending a queer person to you because you said this fucked up microaggression about black people. If you're saying this fucked up shit about black people, how am I going to send a non-binary pregnant person to you? Like I won't do and that. They're, and they're saying it to your face too, right? Which yeah. is like, you're saying it to my And face. making excuses. Like these people were making hella excuses. The excuses that these people were coming up with for like their their inaction or their actions that were fucked up. I was just like, wow, wow, wow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that what, what, you're, what you're telling me right now is really that for your like well-being, emotional physical well-being yes Yes. boundaries they're very firm yeah Mm -hmm. yeah 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 because there is too much going on in the world like this all also happened during a global pandemic yeah yeah while i was like healing from a myomectomy while my wife was going through ivf like it it really made it very clear for me that like my boundaries are very firm and it is not for you it's for me right and my wife and my and my family and yeah. like my my th- yeah the people who are in my life right now are very selective people because i trust them yeah and like you know a lot of people who aren't in my life right now like really also helped to demonstrate that they weren't really my friends or colleagues that cared about me um and it's been so much fucking better. <laughs> well, it's people been are so energy. much better. People yeah. are energy, and we have yeah. limited, we have limited energy, and it seems like you know. Um, I'm sure that the calls right now for unity. I mean, I'm sure the calls for unity right now make me want to like actually <laughs> scream and like throw things across the room, because it's yeah. like no, 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 like you when you take a stand against a a bunch of different types of people and then you want it's like no you can unify but you have to come over here you got to come over here you've got to change and come over here and then we can unify but this idea that anybody that any of us should compromise on on human rights on our on our the fact that people deserve to feel safe like no, 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 yeah. no. So yeah. I, I just, I love that you, I love what you said about the boundaries being, it's not about that person. It's no. not, it's not even necessarily about like, the way I think about boundaries, it's like, don't focus. And I think this is probably true of a lot of people who identify as female. We're, we're, we are taught to have porous boundaries mm-hmm. and that's what makes us good is that we have these porous boundaries. Mm-hmm. And if we focus on the negative of like, oh, I have to keep that person out, then it makes it much harder for us. Yeah. But when we center the fact that, no, I have to protect this, this is yeah. what I'm protecting. It's not about like that. It's mm-hmm. about this. When we center that protecting, then I think it makes it easier for people who have been socialized to not have boundaries to then say, okay, no, I can, I can adopt this kind of like mama bear because that's, that's an archetype that is okay for, for women to kind of embody. So I really, really loved that. Yeah. You have to. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about your offerings and what, what you have so many you have so many your website is like 
Yeah, I'm debating about taking the birth stuff off of my website right now. Right. But to be very honest with you, I don't understand how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't want to lose it. Like, I just don't want it on the website. Like, I don't. So I'm like, do I copy and paste it? Like, I don't understand, like, how to take it away without losing it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, again, a very deliberate choice for me um, in teaching pregnant folks was to in 2021, I'm just teaching BIPOC and, and queer people. Um, there are a million classes for a million white a ladies million. and a million white people and yeah. a million straight people to take out there, but there's yeah. such a limited amount of classes that are like spaces for BIPOC folks and queer folks. So yeah. every other month starting in February through June, depending on <laughs> when um, what's going on with this baby, um, I'm teaching childbirth education. Um, the classes are virtual. Cool. Um, we do it three days. So we do Friday night, Saturday, Sunday. Um, and that is uh, available for people who are single or having a baby alone, for people who are having a baby with a partner, people who are in non-monogamous non poly relationships. There's pricing structures for all of that. Cool. Um, I also teach mindfulness and prenatal yoga to BIPOC mm -hmm. folks. Um, and it's been, the mindfulness class has been really awesome. It's just been like brown people who are giving birth. We spend like a lot of time just talking about what it is to be a brown person giving birth during COVID. And like yeah. these, these folks, everybody who's been in the class so far identifies women. So I will use women until I talk about something else. But these women have been just so open and so um, honest and such a great bonding place for 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 brown people who are pregnant to just yeah. be in a safe space yeah. for an hour every week talking about like what they're experiencing as pregnant folks and then we spend the last 15 minutes sometimes less because the conversation just keeps going and people have a lot of stuff to process um, but we do spend a portion of the time practicing mindfulness and quiet and breathing techniques so that they can use them as they navigate being pregnant people who are yeah. brown during a fucking pandemic. <laughs> um, so that's going on and that's starting in February. And those are the offerings for people who are pregnant. Okay. Um, and then for people who are not pregnant, um, in April, I'm doing my second cohort of childbirth education. And it's really based on the philosophy of what we first started talking about. Like, how can we make childbirth education person-centered, which right. is hard to do, right? Like if you're making childbirth education person-centered, that means you really have to be focused on the individual people who are in your room. But the way that I teach childbirth education to educators and to people who are pregnant is to like first focus on yourself. Yeah what are the biases do you hold yeah how do you like the first lesson is in childbirth educator training is like who are you why are you in this work how do you identify how does the world identify you and then like what biases do you hold and yeah. how does that play into like the work that you do and then over nine weeks we spend time really talking about person-centered care um, centered around anti-racism and um, honoring people who give birth, yeah. all people who give birth. So I have a trans person because I, again, my privilege is that I am a cis person in a world that is dominated by um, cisness. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know what the fuck it's like to give birth as a non-binary person or a trans right. person. So it makes yeah. no sense for me to teach that. It doesn't. 
So I have trans birth workers coming in and talking about that. I have a person who I love who comes in and talks about how relationships shift and change and how individual identity shifts and changes when you become a parent. Um, so I'm really excited about that. That is starting in April. There are already 70 people um, registered for that. And I think I'm capping it around 150. Um, the registration is $600 and people can pay in installments in, in whatever they want. And then the final um, thing that I'm doing is postpartum doula training. Um, this one is pre-recorded because I will be very pregnant when it's time <laughs> to start it. Um, so it's pre-recorded and self-paced and again, focused on the whole body pregnancy model that is really person-centered and really about the self-reflection of the individual birth worker as they go into this work, but really focused on postpartum. So how we prepare people prenatally for postpartum logistically like meal trains food nutrition but also spiritually yeah, because yeah. like there is a there is a there is a spiritual shift that happens when people give birth whether they give birth to a living child whether they have an abortion whether they have a miscarriage when you are when you go through the process of being pregnant and not pregnant there is something that changes in you and it's really important that we center people as they go through this experience. And then for folks who come home with babies, how they identify <laughs> in the world is completely different. And like yeah. how the place that they take in the world as a parent is completely different. And like trying to figure out how we bring more um, ritual and ceremony into the process of becoming a parent. I think preparing for food and stuff like that's easy. People have that on their radar, but we don't really tend to the human being that shifts when they become a parent. Yeah. Um, so that's what the postpartum doula training is about. And I think that's all the things. Oh, and I have a Patreon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so the, so the Patreon is like, the Patreon is like how you can pay me to do yeah. anti-racism work. Yeah. So I spent a lot of time in my Jewish, in the Jewish world, talking about racism and anti-black racism in the Jewish community. And I stopped doing that. And then I started talking a little bit about racism in the Jewish, in the birth world. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, I'm going to do a Patreon because it's, yeah. it's emotionally hard for me to do this work all the time. So yeah, there's, there's three Patreon tiers for anti-racism work, three pa Patreon tiers for folks who are wanting to do birth work. Um, and it allows me to give scholarships to people to take my classes. Like, it's so that. nice to be yeah. able to like, you know, I sent out 20 emails this week <clears throat> to people being like, you don't have to pay for your class because oh. my Patreons helped you pay for it. So Patreon is a really nice way to like step into like anti-racism work around birth work and in general, yeah. <clears throat> while also helping me to like provide scholarships to black and brown and queer people who want to take my classes whether they're educators or pregnant folks, like <clears throat> my goal is to not say no to people who are who are marginalized. And like my Patreons helped me say do that. That's incredible. Well, we are going to link to all of this below, to all of your incredible offering. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Becoming Moms. If you were looking for more support from me during your pregnancy journey, head over to sterlingparents.com to learn more about our membership. The Sterling Parents membership now comes with a private Instagram account where members can send me direct messages 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Pregnancy is hard. You deserve support. Head over to sterlingparents.com to get the best support available for your pregnancy.